to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. friends and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined as always by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, if uh, Shane Helms, or is it Gregory Helms, I'm not sure what it is there, was right next to me, he'd be saying, stand back, there's a hurricane coming through. We're right right down the eye here. So hopefully uh, it blows out to the ocean or something like that. Hopefully. I know you're, you're right outside of Tampa, so you're yes, straight in the path. As of right now, yes, sir. Uh, hopefully it'll be safe and we'll get, we'll get all through with everything uh, just fine. You know, Benny, um, we, we mention a lot on the show. We talk about wrestling. We talk about talent. We always, we, we refer to people. We say legend is overused, but another term that's overused is people say hall of fame caliber or hall of fame talent. And really we have a guest tonight that I think has more, ability to speak on hall of fame talent than really anybody i think we've ever had on the show benny why don't you tell everybody who we got on the phone with us tonight absolutely this gentleman is the founder of the professional wrestling hall of fame he also was a boxing on the boxing hall of fame uh, board of directors for 25 years former deputy commissioner for the new york, new york state athletic commission overseeing pro boxing pro wrestling as well as pro and amateur mma also one of the founding members for the turning stone Athletic Mission, and in the late, here we go with baseball, the late 80s VP of operations for two minor league St. Louis Cardinal baseball teams, the St. Pete Cardinals and the Erie Cardinals of the New York Penn League, which uh, eventually got moved to Hamilton and became the Hamilton Redbirds. <coughs> so it is our pleasure and honor to welcome Mr. Tony Volano to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Benny. Dan, thank you for... Uh... Asking me to join you in your podcast. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know it's it's a it's going to be a pleasure talking to you, and I'm sure you've got plenty plenty of good stories to go around. Well, I'll tell that you. Uh, I'll tell the stories that you can uh, tape. <laughs> so, so we only the good ones. Try I'll try to try, try those other stories if you want. Try and keep it at least PG thirteen, right, Benny? Yeah. Uh, I will. Could be MA, mature audience. Of course, that will leave me out. <laughs> well, we we get started. We we have pretty much the same question for everybody, and the answers are always different. They're always unique and interesting. So, I, I'm going to start with with the obvious. And how did you first discover professional wrestling? Like, when did the bug bite you? You know, wh when did you become a fan of of professional wrestling, as it were? Well, you're not going to believe this, Benny or Dan. Um, the people that do know me know that when I uh, started the Hall of Fame, I didn't know too much about wrestling. And um, when I was with the Athletic Commission, I overseen uh, pro wrestling, pro boxing, and then later pro MMA. 
So when I would go to the shows, um, the pro wrestling shows were different than pro boxing. Uh, pro boxing, I worked with multiple people, and we had to do a variety of different things. Where pro wrestling, I uh, oversee, I overseen the whole operation. I was the only guy there. So when you walk into a place, you used to make sure that they had uh, licenses or the rings were set up properly and there was proper medical people there. And even up to the facility being the right facility. So I didn't really understand uh, wrestlers that much in the beginning. Um, But as I sat in the back and with the wrestlers, I actually got to know the, the person that is a wrestler. And that's what excited me. That's what got me interested to find out that most of them were college educated. Uh, a lot of them were from the Olympics or something to that uh, or college. Um, and uh, it, it was like in the beginning, I thought, like, well, I'm going to be talking to this guy who's who's going to just have this gimmick all night long and he's going to be you know, the the character all night. But when I found out the only character only really came out when he opened the curtain and went out there and then he would come back in and say, holy geez, you see that? That lady wanted to hit me with a chair. What is she nuts? You know, crazy. And I would sit there and I'd go, man, you know, you you sold it out there. And it, hence the why a lot of them have SAG cards, you know, Screen Actor Guild cards. Uh, a lot of them... Um, they had to perform every night in front of a fan who paid to to be entertained, and they were very good entertainers. So I would say the answer to your question was probably in the mid to later 90s when I started getting interested into professional wrestling, not to become a wrestler, but to organize them to a point where a you know, what are you guys going to do afterwards uh, when you're done wrestling? Is there a Hall of Fame for you? Or is there a place to, to go and and bring your wife and kids or grandkids to show them what you did? And um, that's where, you know, it all started to form from, from that point on. Now, I would go a little bit deeper, but I think a couple of your questions I'll go that I'll explain it in the next coming questions more than what I've just explained. But the answer to you, latter 90s. Okay. You know, Benny, I think what's that's uh what the the second time in in only a few weeks where it, it's been a, a a late if not uh for lack of a better term, a late blossom into wrestling. Yeah, Usually really it's, it's lifelong them. fans yeah. or somebody that, you know, their granddad took them to a show when they were five kind of thing. No, I, I, it's a, like, like we always say, every answer is different. That one is definitely different. <laughs> Absolutely. Tony. Yeah, so, I like oh, it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So um, from, uh, I read this, Absolutely wonderful article by a Dr. Bob Bryla uh, regarding the the origins of the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, and you know it, it's amazing. You hear about companies starting at a at a dinner meeting, you know, 
on the back of a napkin or a great invention or something like that. And, you know, <clears throat> according to the article, the, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame started because you were having a conversation with George Steele, of all people, uh, at, after a wrestling show. And you were asking, you know, so where's the Hall of Fame? Ironically, you're not that far away from the Baseball Hall of Fame. But um, you asked George where the, where the uh, Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame was. And you were pretty surprised that he said there was no, uh, you know, no tangible Hall of Fame. And, and um, so you got the idea that maybe, you know, it, it was time to, to have one, to create one. And George, uh, George actually volunteered to help you and went up doing some, uh, some work for you. Did I, did I get that all right? Yeah. Or close? I was at, at, a, at a show. And he happened to be one of the wrestlers on the show. And we just kind of clicked. We were got to be buddy buddies right up until he passed. And I, after the show, I said, what are you doing? He goes, nothing. I said, let's go across the street. We'll get something to drink. And uh, let's just, you know, BS a little bit. Okay, okay. So we go across the street, me, him, and Johnny Walker Black. I don't know if you know him, but he's a dangerous dude. So was we... Was uh, wrestling had, too, wasn't he? Oh, that was just... <laughs> no, Johnny Walker Black was one of the better scotches. <laughs> so the three of us got together, and we're talking about wrestling. I'm asking where the Hall of Fame is, because I'm from a region that has about six Hall of Fames in a 90-mile radius. We have like 23 in New York State alone. So <clears throat> I said, where's the wrestling one? And he goes, nah, he goes, we we have a, some kind of dinner every year, and we're given plaques. And, and then you, and most of the time, he said, I've given the plaques in the locker room. He goes, and you're in the Hall of Fame. There was no like podium to walk up to to you know express your gratitude or, or things like that. It was just you know here it is you're in. So I said, well that's that has to change, and I said if I could put together something and send it away to the powers to be to approve one, would you help me in it? And he said, of course. But at that time, Johnny Walker kicked in, and we were kind of like blowing smoke up each other's, you know what I mean. And afterwards, I said, you know, I wonder if he's serious in that. So I went home, and the next day, I started um, putting something together. I started writing a charter. And I did all the qualifications needed from the Board of Regents in New York State. And I had them send me the requirements. I filled out everything, sent it in. And on December 17th, and that was in September. So December 17th, 1999, in the mail, I received a charter that said I can put together a Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. And so I called him. And I, his name is Jim, Jim Myers, William James Myers. And I said, Jim, I said, I just, you never believe what I got in the mail today. And he goes, what? And I said, 
I got a charter. I got a charter to put a Hall of Fame together. I said, now, it's your turn. You have to go out and help me. He goes, what the hell are you talking about? I said, don't you remember when we were out drinking the other day? I said, them bullshit. And he goes, I said, he goes, yeah. I said, well, I got the charter, a real charter. I could do this. And I, and I said, I'm on other halls and uh, as boards and see how they're done. I, you know, like you mentioned earlier, I'm right down the street from Cooperstown and Saratoga's uh, Hall of Fame, not too far from the Olympics, you know, in Lake Placid and stuff. And, and the Boxing Hall of Fame is only an hour away. So, and I, I sit on that as well. So I said, you know, I got an idea how to do it. I'm in a position to know most of the wrestlers. I said, and I do know how to organize. So I said, I'm going to give this a shot, but they don't know me, these wrestlers, nor do I even know them, who they are. You have to call them and you have to tell them to take my call. I said, I'll do it from that point on, but I really need you to open the doors for me. So he did. I mean, he, in the beginning, he was a little gruff about it, but he said, no, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he goes, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, I got to get together some stuff. I got to get, uh, figure out how to induct people. Where am I going to do it? Because if I didn't get a brick and mortar place, I would have became just another Hall of Fame on the Internet. The difference was to have a real place to display memorabilia, to bring your wife and your family to see a display, just like every other hall has. So I went off and I uh, live in uh, Schenectady and I asked the powers to be if they had any place that they could give me or charge me a reduced amount to try to lift this off. And they said, yeah, well, you know, we got a couple of places we'll pick and stuff. And I didn't like the first or four or five I saw until the one guy goes, he said, look it, he goes, I think I've got a place for you. It's a starter place not going to be a place if this takes off because it's not going to be big enough for you. So he said, but it, it, it's big enough to at least open your doors. All right. All right. I'll see it. We're, we're got to go. So they take me to it and it's just a big suite. It was like eight, 900 square feet suite. Um, and I said, well, you know what? It isn't big enough, but I don't have anything to display. So it's, large enough, I guess, until I, I fill it. And so I call Steele and I said, I got a place. No, I said, I really do. I said, we're, we're starting now. So I need memorabilia. Well, where is this place? I go, it's in Schenectady. He goes, oh, okay. What does it look like? I go, you ready for this? And he goes, what? I said, the address is one, two, three Broadway. And he goes, no, I said, I'm telling you, one, two, three Broadway. And he goes, you know, that's a wrestler's address. One, two, three is the count. And Broadway says that we're, you know, we're taking it to a draw. And I said, you know, I did. And I didn't, I said, I knew you'd like it though. 
And he said, let's do it. So next time he came up, I showed it to him and we started, you know, putting stuff up on the walls and, and Bryla, when you talk about Bryla, Bryla was really uh, instrumental in getting the hall off the ground because he wrote all the rules and regulations for induction. Uh, you know, well, we did it together, but he was the main guy and uh, he always ran everything by me. But the categories that we had, um, stuff like that. And then the selectors I chose and I, I put that together on um how the selectors were going to select and Bryla got the selectors I said well let's start with 30 or 40 and and I said you know we're going to have you know an a committee a selection committee which will have one chairman and uh, we'll have uh, two other people that they get to pick now when you meet you select candidates for every category and when you're done you show it to me and i'm going to ask other historians if this is a good ballot i said i love you guys and everything but you know my head's on the chopping block here if things go bad not you you go back home so we looked at it we did it and it was very hard to do the first one because most were dead. And, but I'm a contractor and to build the house, you have to have a good foundation. And I had to have a good foundation there. I had to go back to where it originated and put them there to make this a reality. You just couldn't get the ones that were popular at that time because the other people that came before them are the ones that set that whole thing up. So I would say you, whoever the chairman is, has no voting power unless there's a draw. So he looked at me and said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, when you send them ballots out, and in one category, they both got, there's two people, if we only are picking one, and there's two people with the same amount, then it goes back to the selection committee. If the selection committee can't break the tie, then you break the tie as the chairman. And so that's how it, it worked. And it, we didn't really have to fine tune it too much throughout the years kind of like took care of itself and the fact that wrestlers were voting on wrestlers and not someone who owned a business or started a hall on their own um this was theirs it was the fans and it was the wrestlers and when we started putting in people that weren't going into let's say the WWE Hall of Fame, because he was only putting people in uh, during current years. He didn't go back to Jim Londos, George Hack and Schmidt. He didn't go back to those type, type people. And you had to. When we displayed stuff at the hall, I was displaying stuff back to the 1880s. So it, I would tell people, 
it didn't start in 1980. It started in like a hundred years before that. And so as we selected people, we would call them, invite them up, and it just took off from there. In the beginning, Steele had to persuade a few to come in and buy into this thing and that there was no gimmick for the guy running it, um, things like that. And it was a matter of like, uh, well, when a wrestler would come in to be inducted and meet me, it was almost like two dogs sniffing each other for the first time, you know? And it was kind of like a little crazy. And a lot of them wanted to be part of it, but didn't understand what it was. They were kind of like the guys looking out, out the, on the outside of a glass room, you know, and they see us in the room and they're wondering, you know, should I go in or shouldn't I, should I wait to see what happens or what? And eventually those people came inside. And by the time we, and we started a dinner in 2001, which brought 300 people at a 300 seat uh, facility. Um, I mean, it sold out right away. So I said, I think we can do the induction now. And that was in 2001. And then our first induction uh, turned out 2002. Um, We had a few hundred people show up, but I think a lot of people were waiting to see what it was about. And the fact that I had induct mostly dead people, Uh, you know, families were already second, third generations. you know, to try to get a, a wife or a granddaughter or a grandson or some uncle, somebody to show up. And, uh, but I, I, I did it. I, I, I said, we just got to keep with it. And uh, every year got better until it became the best. And we became the only brick and mortar hall of fame there was for professional wrestling. Tony, I, I have so that- to, uh, chat about George Steele a bit you know a lot of people most of the the younger fans they remember you know the green tongue and chewing on the turnbuckles and you know the, uh-huh. the you know the, the Neanderthal but I remember when when George Steele first came to the WWF when I became a fan in 1968 his his promos were actually very very eloquent and I somewhere along the line I guess they turned him into you know into an, a, a caveman but at first he's he was quite intelligent and the man you know you mentioned about the you know wrestlers being educated as well as some of them having uh, sag cards so george Steele, i guess has a master's degree or had a master's degree from either michigan or michigan yeah. state michigan michigan and, state and yeah and uh when he went he acted uh, he was uh, was in the movie ed wood and right. when uh I guess when he I heard this story when he first uh, showed up on the set, um, somebody asked if he had any any uh, acting experience, and I believe it was Bill Murray who said this man's been acting his whole life, but yeah. he he was a natural for the movie. Yeah, he became good friends with Bill Murray too. He went to a couple of their golf outings and okay. stuff, the Murray outings and stuff. But he um, he had dyslexia. And he had a real hard time reading stuff. And, and it hurt him all through school and stuff. But he had a couple of teachers and stuff that understood it. 
and they kind of like, you know, uh, took different approaches on some of their tests and stuff so he could excel on them. And, and then he, he was mostly um, in the athletic department, like a coach or a gym teacher type of thing. And eventually in his latter years, they named the football stadium after him, uh, William James Myers Stadium. And because uh, he had a couple state champions and things like that. And it's kind of funny, Dan, the reason why he started professional wrestling was he was a teacher. Well, you know, gym teacher and things like this. His wife was a teacher. They had a couple kids and he wasn't making the money he needed. So in the summer months, when they were off, he would wrestle. Uh, he got invited to wrestle. Uh, I think Lou Klein uh, is the one that brought him in. And what happened was is uh, he uh, would wrestle with a mask on. He was called the student. Yes. And the mask in the beginning kind of looked like a girdle would eyes cut out and a mouth cut out over his head. It was kind of a weird thing, you know? And, uh, I have, I had a real nice action picture of him as the student wrestling Bobo Brazil. And it was, uh, it was a pretty good shot, but he wrestled with the mask to pick up some extra money. And he thought he had to wear a mask because he might get fired from his job because the way people looked at that type of business. So one time the students started catching on because some of the students started going to wrestling shows and they saw him there and they had the mask on and stuff. But they're saying, you know, how many people have a hairy body like him? That's coach. That's coach. So uh, he told me at one practice, he goes, I lined them all up. He said, and they took their helmets off. And they stuck their tongues out and they were all all green or something to the effect to where he got busted. And they all knew that he was who he was, you know. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. See, I didn't believe the green tongue thing because it's kind of funny how the green tongue came about was he used to hang around the giant, Andre. And they would go out every so often and they would eat. Andre always had to have a small monkey dish of minced garlic. And he would eat the garlic and eat the garlic and eat steel, eat garlic, eat steel, eat garlic. Steel would eat the garlic and stuff. Now, the other wrestlers weren't appreciative of that because when they were, you know, being put in certain holds and stuff, he was breathing in their face and they were saying, you got to stop this. You're killing us. You're killing us. And he would laugh and stuff. So one day, somebody gave him some chlorets. And he took the chlorets for his breath. It happened to be a promo night with the WWF taking pictures. And they were doing publicity shots and stuff. A lot of his shots came with his mouth open. And with his mouth open, his tongue was green. And so they kind of like just, they went with that. And they kept it up. and they started turning him into being like, you know, a beast of some sort. And plus he didn't, he didn't have the mic skills that most people had. So it kind of helped him being in a uh, 
character that had limited vocabulary, more grunting or two-word sentences, and uh, it helped them a lot, and uh, the turnbuckle thing. But the tongue really came about from eating Clorettes, and he always had Clorettes in his pocket, and uh, he would chew them up. Real, if he went to meet you for the first time, he'd chew them real quick and try to suck on them and stuff, and then he would... He would like, how you doing? And he sticks his tongue out and he grabs you by the head or grab you by the neck, you know. And he, you know, it was kind of kind of funny how he did it. And I'm just going to elaborate one more time. I keep on talking here. But no, what happened was one time it was we were doing a dinner in Toronto. So it was me and Steele driving from Albany to Buffalo. And we picked up Moolah and May. So the four of us are in a car going over to Toronto. So Steele goes, I'm thirsty. I got to get something to drink. Stop at this drugstore. So we pull in the parking lot, stop in a drugstore. We're walking around and he looks down and he sees a whole case of Clorettes. Now, they changed the Clorettes to where it wasn't making his tongue green anymore. They took that out of it for some reason. I don't know why. And he saw the old style Clorettes. So he got the manager of the place and he goes, how much you got of these things? How many of you got of them? He goes, well, I got that and uh, maybe one more box. And he, he bought all of them. He bought them all just for the gimmick. And when we went into the dinner that night, he's chewed, he had them all chewed up. A lot of them chewed up before he walked in there and he's going, Rah! you know, and tongue was all green. So the people at the dinner really enjoyed that. Oh, uh, that's funny. Yeah, uh, you know, just to take a quick step backwards. Um, I mean, obviously, we've talked a lot with wrestling, and it's been your passion business for many years. But you, as mentioned in the intro, and, and you talked about it a bit, it, it, it so far is is you have business interests outside of wrestling. I was hoping you could tell our listeners uh, expand a little bit on Volano Corp. Well, I'm retired now. 2017, I retired in our 71st year. We have four generations, my grandfather, uh, his two sons, my father and my uncle, and then their children, three on my side and two on his side. So there was seven of us at one time because the grandfather passed. And we had a construction company, a construction supply company, a power products company, which sold like saws, generators, snowblowers, lawnmowers, and we fixed them, repaired them, that type of stuff. And we had about 14 outlets. And that was, it was one of the reasons why I had to close the hall uh, as far as me being involved in it. Because for 15 years, 16 years, I worked Every single day, I had 14 branches, 130 people, and I had the Hall of Fame on the weekends. I worked seven days a week for almost 15 years. That's how devoted I was to putting this thing on and making it happen. I was late to a lot of family functions. I missed a lot of family functions. Um, Shoveled a lot of snow. 
No one, no, there's nobody that's going to help you. When they say that, oh, you know, I'll help you, I'll help you, I'll help you at the hall. Well, they come thinking that they're going to see Hulk Hogan there, you know. Instead, I give them a bottle of Windex and say, hey, do those windows over there. Well, they do it until the time's up and then they leave, but usually don't see them again. So a lot of shows, snow shoveling, a lot of window cleaning, a lot of vacuuming, a lot of repairing, a lot of purchasing items like uh, mannequins and uh, frames and display cases and, you know, just building it up to where, you know, it would be a reasonable uh, display that you could bring your mother and grandmother and them and not be embarrassed on, you know, like some of the stuff I wouldn't put up, like those foam fingers and some of them used to be the middle finger and stuff like that. And you see, that was, that was a no for me. I, I didn't want any of that stuff, you know, but just a clean display. I didn't want to fall back into the wrestling uh, genre of it, where most people portray it to be. I wanted them to see it and have a history lesson. How would, and what it did for communities and what it did for the sport itself. And some would argue that it was a sport where I would sit toe to toe with them and tell them that they were, uh, it was a sport. They are athletes. They do flips, somersaults. They do things more than that a football player would do. Some of them were bigger than football players. Some were more athletic than basketball players you know they they're a good mix of people in wrestling and what was nice about wrestling also was that they were smart they knew their 401k like a headlock they went out and sold their own merch they would be at a show and they would sell their own stuff and schedule their own next show where, say, in, re- in boxing, it wasn't like that. Those people, a lot of them came from prison, uh, drug rehabs. Um, somebody owned them. Uh, if they had a big fight, they didn't get much of it. Um, so a wrestler pretty much made sure that the promoter didn't take anything more than they were supposed to. But the Volano Corp itself was helped me sponsor a lot of stuff to get it off the ground. We were underground utility, putting in water sewer, storm sewer, and new developments. We would go in, cut trees, make roads, bring all the underground utility to the property line. And we sold to every town, city, village. Now the fourth generation has it. My nephews, I didn't have a son, so I had two daughters that really weren't interested in construction work. But my brother Paul and Joe, they had boys, and um, those guys did really well, and they're doing real well with it now. But Uncle Tony had, had to get out, take a retirement. You know, it was my time for that. And uh, now I'm just looking to find something to do, I guess. Talk to people in podcasts. Yeah. There you go. I like Tony, it. So um, 
eventually you relocated the, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame to Amsterdam, New York, and you were able to get a, a secure a dollar a year lease, which is amazing. With the you know with the condition that you built out the building, and I think and you kind of touched on it already, but uh, you know a good time to tell our listeners about you you had a fairly modest budget, you know especially as regards labor and things like that. But you had a lot of people who stepped up to the plate and volunteered, you know both financially as well as uh, you know just get, you know rolling up their sleeves and providing some sweat equity. Well. My right-hand man was a guy named Mike Capano, and he had a new breed wrestling independent uh, organization uh, out of Gloversville. But Mike was, uh, is, and still is, a great guy, and he knew a lot about wrestling. Uh, he had an uncle that was a wrestler back then called Leonardo Dante, and uh, he got the wrestling bug from that. Then he uh, started a uh, federation. And then uh, when we opened up, he said, you know, I want to help you. And uh, he was the best. Him and Bryla, Johnny Pantosi, uh, those guys were the best, the backbone of everything. But what happened was is they sold 123 Broadway, and they told us we had to leave. And Mikey Capano found in the paper uh, this rundown building in Amsterdam. And so I approached them and said, look it, why don't you give me that building? And because it looks pretty rundown, instead of you spending any money in that building, I'm a 501c3. I'll try to go out and get some kind of grants. When I get the grants, I'll spend the money in the building and it will be my own labor and everything else. So, well, okay, okay. And they're saying, well, we got to charge you something. So I said, how about a dollar a year? Because if this doesn't work out, you're going to get a building that was just rehabbed. I said, you, it's a win-win all the way around. I said, so here's $10. I'm good for 10 years. And they kind of like looked at me and they said, okay. And I said, put it in writing. And we did. And then I went in this building and we stripped it right down to the two by fours, the walls and stuff, and put all the sheetrock up and tore the floors up and put rug down. And it was, uh, it was quite an undertaking. It's hard to believe I'm talking about it now and I'm picturing it in my head, you know, what we really went through. And it seems like it never happened. But, um, yeah, and then we went from an 800-square-foot building to a 4,600-square-foot building. And two story. it was three stories, but the third story was an attic-type thing to where we kept our storage. And... Uh, we displayed the the first two rooms and about the fifth year in or the first two floors um about the first five years maybe fifth year in they offered me the building that adjoined that building next door so i actually took over another two three thousand square foot building but in that building i made a a, be- a real nice library 
and I called it the Lillian Ellison Library Moolah. for Moolah. And then I uh, had a, a small banquet room on the second floor. And I used that for question and answers, meet and greets. <laughs> I used that. Um, somebody was throwing out chairs. And I got like about 120 chairs, which was great because then I just brought them over there and laid them out. And the guy was throwing away a... a uh, a, de- a deus, a de- what do you call it, a podium, a but the deus, and thrown away one, a heavy son of a gun, took like three or four of us, carried up the stairs, <laughs> and uh, we had that, and then I made an office for me and Capano up there, and a, a meeting room for the wrestlers, so before they went and met the fans downstairs, someplace that they could show before we go down there. So I was running those two buildings probably for the last uh, maybe eight, eight, nine years or so, because I was there for a total of about 12 years, because I'll tell you what, it was in the uh, it was in the seventh year because they gave it to me for five years. And at that time, I already had seven other 10. So I said, I'll take it if you move the five to the seven and make it, they both expire in, on 12 years. And so they just said, okay, all right, all right. So I did that. And while we were there, the uh, city uh, kind of a, you know, a throwback to the 60s, 50s. It used to be the rug capital of the world for Mohawk carpeting. And they used to have um, quite a bit of well-to-do people that lived there at one time. And per capita, I think they had the most amount of millionaires per capita in the city. I mean, it was a real nice place at one time. But (laughs) that all went south, literally. And I said, what am I going to do? I bring these people here. They're walking by empty storerooms and things like this. So on that street that they had to walk by, I made sure the front windows were covered or they were dressed with mannequins and things. And then I started a uh, street fair. I called it the Spring Fling. And that really took off because the first year, 8,000 showed up. And then I had about, well, last year I did it. Ran for about five years, and then we kind of like were leaving then. And uh, about maybe 10,000 showed up that one year. I had over 100 craft booths and stuff. And it was just a full day of just going bananas. You know, it was really good. And the wrestlers loved it. And I didn't believe in paying to see these guys and not getting to see these guys. So I said, we're going to do something different. You're not going to have security. You're not going to have people walking around you all the time, pushing people away. Get your wife. Go buy some at the booths. Walk around the booths. Let the people see you. 
I'll give you a little name tag. At least they'll know you're a wrestler. Take pictures with them and stuff. You have to promote this thing. This is what it's all about. When they go home, they're going to talk about it. How they talk about it is up to you. You do it shitty. You piss them off. That's how they talk about it. But if you go over there and shake their hands, pictures with them, sign their autographs, they're going to go home and that's exactly how they'll talk to it about it. And when they do, they may be talking to a future buyer for next year. And that's pretty much how we, uh, how we did it and how it brought people to the events. And uh, it was a great time. It was like a shooting star. It turned out to be a, like a shooting star, you know, like a once in a lifetime thing going on there. Very cool. To, if I could digress for a moment, I, I want to go back to something you had said earlier, kind of expand on it a little bit. When you talked about being, you know, being given the plaques in the locker room and, and you, you kind of touched on it, but I was hoping you could expand a little bit on the actual selection process. Every episode we do, Benny always tries to sneak in a, a baseball reference and, you know, obviously baseball's, you know, the, 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 the votes and then the NFL with the writers and the sports writers. And I was curious uh, if you could kind of, cause you, you, you mentioned creating a board of selectors. If you could kind of expand a little bit on the selection process, the categories you talked about, like the pioneer era and the modern era, uh, just sort of a, a brief expansion on, on the selection process itself. Well, Dr. Bryla is a historian. And so is Pantosi. And so I started off with two already. So who around the country do you know are wrestling historians? And they came up with about, oh, shit, I don't know, 40, 50 people, solid people. And I said, all of these are good. You know, Greg Oliver from uh, Slam and uh, Bobby Oates. In California and all these different guys that across the country, the more across the country, the better it was for me because that's what we were touching out there and they were talking about us out there. So I said, how many you got? And I think the first year we had like 40, 45. And I said, I don't want no more than 30. I don't want these people to um, think they're going to get something every year. I said, I don't need people to gang up and start bullet voting or trying to talk other people into voting for somebody. I don't want you to tell them when it's going out. And I want them returned in a, you know, a timely fashion. So, they called up like 30 people, got their names and addresses. We come up with a ballot. Riley would write, you know, who's in the pioneer, who's in the modern, who's in the tag team, who's in the women, who's in the international, who's in the TV era, you know, that old stuff. And we had to put years in and they would bring them back. Now I didn't want all historians because I didn't, I, I just didn't, I just, I'm not a guy like 
all my eggs are in one basket, you know, like we're going to take some out and put them somewhere else. So I said, we need some wrestlers. But that came more the second year because the first year I was going to ask wrestlers that probably would eventually be Hall of Famers and I didn't need collusion. So what we did was the first year, all rest, all historians voted. The second year, historians and whatever, like, like Bruno was in the first year. He wasn't dead. He was like one of the two that were alive at the time because Lou Fez was coming, but he died two weeks before the event. But what I did, I started picking up wrestlers and I told Bryla, I said, look it. We're going to get to a point where I want half writers and historians and half Hall of Fame wrestlers that have already been inducted. And we uh, jumped it from like 40 to about 60 in a couple of years. And we ran with that like 50, 60, right up to the time I gave it up. Uh, and we would, they, would be, they would come to the chairman of the selector Say if it was uh, one, Bravo was the chairman. It would come to him. He would tally all the votes. If there was a tie, he'd go to the two people that were on his committee, see if he could break the tie. But if they both voted for the same ones, then Bravo had to break the tie. So I, because I, I told him, I said, look, we're running on a slim budget. I'm not paying for two people. You're, I'm paying for one, one guy. And then put his name on the ballot next year. Maybe that guy will win next year. So we did that. And it, it seemed to work out okay. I mean, uh, Bryla would pass it on to me. I would sit down and I would double check all his numbers to make sure he didn't miss anything. And when I called them back, I over went over it with them again. And I said, are we on board with uh, these people? Yeah. And I'll tell you. Danny, this is how ignorant I was to wrestling in the beginning. Will these guys sell any tickets for me? I never heard of these guys. <laughs> and they all laughed. And they're all laughing. They're saying, they're in the Hall of Fame. Of course, they're going to sell you tickets. What the hell are you thinking? And I would crack up, you know, but I would say, but you know what? I'm not lying to you. I'm not trying to act like I'm a, a freaking historian. And trying to BS my way through you. I'm trying to tell you, look, I'm learning as this thing goes. I became very astute afterwards because I read most of the stuff I was hanging up. I met most of the people being inducted. I went to dinner with a lot of those people. I vacationed with some of them. I mean, so a lot of them come to my house. So I became... The stories started coming. The history of them started coming. Uh, I just learned so much from it. And then uh, at least I got to be almost like one of the boys to where, like, I could sit down and talk to these guys uh, and understand who and what the hell they were talking about. Because really, in the beginning, I had no clue. And I just knew how to organize. I knew how to put things together. I sat on boards and stuff to see how they did it. I'd gone to their inductions of other halls to see how they did it. And so, and I had the connection in the locker room. So with Steele's help, 
Bryla's help, Pantosi's help, Mikey Capano's help, all those guys, man, you know, they're the ones that really helped me pull this through. I'm taking the credit, but those guys actually prepared me for the credit. They're the ones that taught me. I hope that answered it. Absolutely. Tony, so Dan mentioned, you know, me with my baseball. I'm I'm a bit I'm I actually my my first game at Yankee Stadium was at night it was in nineteen sixty four and I'm I can actually say that I went to a game where uh Mantle and Maris home hit homers in the same game. So my, my roots in baseball are deep. Um what was it like? Uh you said you were the, the general manager. Did you own own the minor uh, teams? Yeah, my my family, we're going back to that. My brothers and I were in five professional sports. Three three brothers, five sports. I mean, who does that? No one has that. And it was baseball. My brother, older brother, Joe, who passed away about four years ago. He was a baseball historian. He uh, bought two minor league but I went in with them. That was my fourth sport. And, and we bought two minor league teams, one the St. Petersburg Cardinals down in Florida, yep. and then one the old Erie Cardinals from the New York Penn League. After a year with New York Penn League, we moved them up to Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, which was kind of cool because it was double for me. Hamilton, Ontario, to me, probably brought out most of the uh, pro wrestlers than any other place outside of say maybe Charlotte or something, but Hamilton, Ontario back then was, was huge, you know? So that was a great thing for me, but we had two teams. My brother was a historian. He was a president in the, in a Northeast chapter here, a Sabre facility for American baseball research. Yes, sir. He was a, he was a scout for the Cleveland Indians. So he was pretty uh, entrenched into the baseball's world. My brother, Paul, my younger brother, was a football player. He uh, was a All-American at a University of Maryland. And, <laughs> nice. uh, and then he, uh, he got drafted by the Bears. But that was the same time the World Football League came in where Zonka, Kick, Warfield, all them jumped. And they were getting more money. So my brother jumped as well. And he played for the San Antonio Wings and the Orlando Blazers. And he had two children. He had two boys. The one boy, Paul, his Paul Jr., played at UI or URI, University of Rhode Island. And he wasn't as big to make the pros, but he was a good football player. He had a good teacher. And so he we we carry our family carries dual citizenship with Italy. So if you had if you were a citizen of Italy, you could play football over there. So we got Paul to go over to Italy and he played American football in the European League in Italy. And which is kind of neat when you're 22, 23 years of age and they play in Barcelona. They play in Switzerland. They play in um, 
shit, they play in like four or five cities in Italy. And, you know, and they take care of him and everything. And it was great. And he played in three Super Bowls there. And then his younger, his other son, his youngest son, Joey, my godchild, Joey, um, he was an All-American out of uh, University of Maryland as well as my brother. My brother, Paul, and his son are only one of four father-son combinations in uh, the collegiate uh, world to do that. You know, the, I know the Mannings were one and somebody else, I don't know. But Joey, we all expected him to get drafted, but he never got drafted. But Belichick liked him a lot. He went prior to the end of the season. He went to Maryland and interviewed my nephew for over two hours and watched films with him. Things like, you see this situation? What would you do? What would you call? What would you defend? You know, that type of thing. Because he was a defensive lineman. So he doesn't get drafted. Belichick calls him up and said, I want you to come down here as a free agent. He goes down the Patriots, on, walks on as a free agent. He's there for about a week. And Will Fork, here's his Achilles. Joey stepped in and played 16 games that first year. Recording 54 tackles, a couple fumbles, a couple sacks, a couple block passes. He did a real good job. And he was there the year after, and they played in a Super Bowl against Seattle. And they won that, and he got a beautiful ring. And then the next year, he's at spring training. And you know they all have uh, spring training games before the regular season, usually like four. Yes. Well, it's Thursday night. They're playing the Giants. They're practicing on the field. He gets called off the field to be told that his house just burnt down. Oh, Jesus. He says, I can't believe it. All his memorabilia, all that kind of stuff, burnt down. They throw him back in, you know, to practice and stuff. The game starts, blah, blah, blah. They're trying his last game, so they usually they put the unproven in on the beginning to see if, you know, if they do something different to maybe keep him. Well, there's 54 men on the roster, and Saturday – Joey was the last man cut, 54. So on Thursday, his house burnt down. Saturday, he was the last man cut, losing his job. And then on Monday, he was in the Atlanta Falcons training camp and went to the Super Bowl that year with the Atlanta Falcons against the Patriots, which was kind of ironic. <laughs> and he says to me, Uncle T., because I, I called him afterwards. I said, I feel so sorry for you, Joe. Because that was the game where they were ahead like 28 to, to three. 
Oh, yeah. 28-3, yeah. And they lost. And he said, Uncle T, I had an AFC champion or a Super Bowl ring. I, I, I thought I had an NFC championship ring. I could feel it. I can't believe we lost. I, I, he goes, I just can't believe it. I said, well, Joey, you lost to the GOAT. If anybody beat you, don't feel ashamed that he beat you because he's the best. No one, you know, you could say what you want about him or have your feelings about him, but no one has his record. It is what it is. And so he, you know, and he left, you know, and then that was like his last year. He made pension. So, and now he's working in the family business. That's but I might run off on the answer. What was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you pretty much answered it. Tony, um, Dr. Bryla's article, he, it really touched upon a lot of your attributes. And uh, one of them is integrity and also fiscal conservatism. So I have a couple of stories here that I want you to finish uh, for me. So uh, the, I guess apparently one of the wrestlers... Uh, who was being inducted demanded a first class ticket to the induction, or otherwise they were okay. going to demand take all their memorabilia back. And then the other uh, the other story speaks about your power of persuasion. I guess when you uh, initially uh, sh- um, showed up in Amsterdam, I guess you got some uh, resistance from the mayor, and uh, you sent her back an email and you uh, you know demonstrated how the hall was beneficial not only to you know to the Amsterdam but like other businesses and the whole community. Yeah. So, Tell us the outcome of both of those stories. Which one first? The the wrestler. That was um, the first class ticket. Or yeah, else. I. We don't need names. Just, oh, yeah. Yeah, I and I'm not going to use names, okay? Because yeah, I don't I don't need the trouble. But this guy, I call him up, and I said, and I'm trying to tell him, you know, like. I got a first class for you nonstop. Leaves at 10 in the morning. I'll pick you up when you get here. And I take you to the hotel and blah, blah, blah. I said, please call me back. Nothing. Call him again. Leave message again. So now it's like about 10 days before the event. And I said, where the hell you been? I've been trying to get a hold of you. You're not calling me back. He goes, oh, I've been busy. I'm really sorry. I said, all right. I said, did you get everything? He goes, yeah, but that's why I'm calling you. I go, why? He goes, I don't fly, coach. No, no, I don't fly Southwest. And I said, all right, what do you fly? He goes, Delta. I said, well, look, it. I'll call Southwest up. I'll put it, bank the money somehow or other. And uh, I'm not going to let that bother me. I said, we'll we'll see what Delta is. And he goes, and and I I don't fly coach. I said, what? And he goes, I don't fly coach. Now, Dan, if you know me, I'm a guy that kind of like humble in a way. You know, I'm in the back all the time, or I'm not up on the podium. You know, I don't I don't do any of that stuff. In fact, I hardly do any of these things. And um, I said to him. Well, look at every other, I said, every other wrestler that came in all these years, they flew coach. 
No one had a problem. Now, you want to fly first class? Two things. One, I'll, I'll give you up the 500 bucks towards your ticket, and that's it. Because that's all I allocated all the time. And second, I said, if you want to go first class, you upgrade yourself with your miles and stuff. But you're not going to get over on me to the point where everybody at the place, when you get there, going to find out that you flew first class. What are the guys that, to me, have the same caliber wrestling skills as you where they're making Hall of Fame? I said, why don't they deserve that? He goes, well, they do deserve it. He goes, and you should flew on us. I said, I didn't. I have a small budget, and I'm telling you, you're going coach. You don't want to go coach, then don't come. I don't really give a crap. And so he says, again, that was my years of not knowing wrestling, right? So I, because I didn't need him, I didn't care for him. So I said to him, I said, you're not, if you don't take this, this airfare that I got, I said, I'm not going to give you a first class. Then I'm not coming and return my jacket. I said, of course, I'll return your jacket. I really don't give a crap. And so I get a phone call. That was like on a Friday. I get a phone call on a Sunday night. Some guy saying that he's his lawyer and he wants in the first class. I said, well, Mr. Lawyer, it's about 9, 10 at night on a Sunday. I don't know any lawyer that's calling anybody on Sunday night. I said, and I'm telling you another thing. My business with the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame finances are none of yours. None of your business at all. I don't know who you are. I could care less who you are. I said, so you tell him either straighten up or don't come. So I get a call the next day from this guy or from the wrestler. I want my stuff back. And I want it back right away because I'm going to put it on eBay and I'm going to sell it. And I said, yeah, knock yourself out. I said, I'll have it out today. So I went to the hall. I picked up the item. I boxed it and I threw it on a common carrier. Well, he gets it a day later than he was supposed to get it in the mail. And he wrote me this letter telling me what a piece of shit I was, how no good I am, but crap, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to. I'm going to kill your wife. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your family. I'm going to burn you up. I'm going to burn your house up. And I said, oh, that's nice. And then I said, didn't you tell everybody and write out somewhere that you were a minister? And I said, is this one of your sermons? And so he just like slammed the phone on me, you know. But that's kind of like the story. He never came. I sent it back to him. I still got his letter. I figured maybe that'd be good um, wrestling memorabilia for somebody someday to read it. But um, yeah, that was that was uh, an experience and a half. But you had to hold your guns because what I told him was, you're going to hurt the feelings of everybody that came before you, and you put an expense on the Hall of Fame for everybody that comes afterwards. 
I'm not going to do that. I said the hall of or first class, the coach is very considerable to the point where I could take a second person. You could bring your wife with you. And, and I'd still, still be spending the same amount of money or less. He just didn't get it. He didn't understand it. And I got more uh, pats on the back for doing that from the wrestlers than if I gave in. Because he would have been there saying, yeah, I beat him. I got over on him, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I couldn't afford that. I would have lost a lot of respect. That's that story. What's the other one? So I guess the when you uh, first uh, moved to or relocated to Amsterdam, you got some initial resistance. Oh, with the mayor. The mayor, but you, you managed well, to turn, turn her around somehow. Well, the first mayor was a male. And he kind of was half-assed about me coming. He liked the idea that there's going to be something in our community and they're going to fix up a building that they may have taken down at one time. I don't know, but he liked that part of it. But, and I was, I wish I could say some stuff, but that was when steel was bust him. Steel was really giving it to him good. And a couple of times he like, he gave him a shot here and a shot there and the guys doubling over, you know, and I'm going, Jim, that's that's the mayor, man. He goes, I don't give a shit. He's giving me a hard time. <laughs> it was it, you had to be there. So he loses the next election to this woman. This woman wants to build him back, but she didn't like the fact that I was getting it for a dollar a year. But I kept trying to tell her, I said, it's not a dollar a year. I went out and got forty thousand here, and I got another twenty thousand there. I sunk it all into your building. You got a new roof. You got new windows, you got new walls, you got new carpet. I said, I've, I've got an AC unit in there now. I built a bathroom in there for handicap. I did all this stuff, you know? And uh, she was really giving me a hard time about it. And then I had to go to, every time I went to a meeting, they would give me another list to do. I said, well, how come you just don't give me the same list? The one list with everything on it. And when I'm done doing all the stuff, we're done. We don't have to keep coming here. You don't keep wasting my time here. And so, uh, oh, I promise you, this is the last one. This is the last list. And I'm going, yeah, okay. What do you got now? So she's saying, I want you to, the handrails on the stairs going into the basement aren't of proper height. I want you to fix that. And I want you to do this. And I want you to do that. So I went to the meeting. And I said, at the privilege of the floor, it was my turn to speak. And I asked them, I said, I said, all the councilmen, and this includes the mayor, I said, will you please raise your hand if you've ever been to the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame? And nobody raised their hand. I said, do you know your building inspector has been busting my ass the whole time we've been here? Do you know that your building inspector has never been there either? Do you know that every time that I send stuff over there that it was completed, you give me a list of others to do? But this last list, I says, is very peculiar. And it kind of shows legally that you guys 
are really um, trying your best to keep us out. And this goes to show it. And I said, may I read it? And they said, yes. I said, I'm only going to read this one, okay? Your building inspector and your mayor signed off on it that I had to adjust the height on the handrails going into the basement. So they said, why don't you just do it? I said, because there is no basement. The building's on a slab over a creek. We don't have a basement. So how could I fix a handrail on stairs that lead to nowhere? There are no stairs. There's no basement. I said, so when are you going to leave me alone? And they all kind of like didn't say anything. They were all kind of like, holy crap. So the mayor calls me up the next day and says, you know, go ahead. We're going to go ahead with everything. You know, we apologize to you like that and blah, blah, blah. I said, whatever. I said, when are you going to come and visit? And she goes, well, yeah, yeah, we'll be there. We'll be there. And I said, all right. So I put an induction that spring fling on. And she loved it. The fact that I brought 8,000 people that first year <laughs> to a city that it was probably you could count on one hand how many people would be down there during the day. So she comes walking in. She goes, oh, this is nice. I didn't know how you had it set up. I said, let me walk you around a little bit. So I walked her around downstairs. I took her upstairs and we, you know, she liked everything. She goes, I can't believe it. I go, it's like a history lesson. There's a couple of people here in the local area that were big time wrestlers. I said back in the day, and you should know your history of their people here. I said, she goes, I have to apologize to you. This is, I just can't believe it. And I, and she goes, I'm sorry. And I said, you know how you can uh, rectify it? I said, how about you coming tonight to the dinner and, you know, say something on the mic. Here's two tickets for your meal. I give her two tickets to go. She showed up. She couldn't believe I had 300 people there. She stands at the podium. She says her deal and her speech. And when she was done, she left. Didn't stay. So Brawler goes with me and goes, hey, she left. And I said, I know, but I got her here. So he goes, yeah. So the week after, um, Bob comes down on a Saturday. And I said, go in the back, go to the back of the building. We had an alleyway. And I always had to keep pulling weeds and shit, you know. And I said, go back in the alleyway. You're not going to believe who's back there. And all of a sudden, Brother walks in the back, and I had the mayor picking weeds in the back of the place. And he goes, that's the mayor. She's picking the weeds. I said, don't you love it? And he just, like, started laughing. And that was, from that point on, we, you know, she treated me fairly well, you know. And that's the persuasion story. It's a great story. <laughs> you know, it seems like we say this all the time, that there's so much more we need, we could get through. And 
we'll definitely, I mean, I thank you so much for the time you've given us tonight. We'll definitely, Benny will reach out to you to get you back on because there's still a lot more to talk about. But as we wrap up, I, I guess the final question from me is, what does the future hold for Tony Villano? What events do you have coming up? Anything like that? Anything you want to plug on your way out? So two years ago, I, I left the athletic commission. Up until then, I was working all the time. I worked in my last year. I worked 35 weekends. You know, I had 35 different weekends, better and Sundays to, to work. So I was fairly busy. But since I retired, since uh, I left that place, I uh, the athletic commission, I really, I really don't have too much more to do. I don't fish. I don't garden. Yeah, I don't golf. You know, I don't do any of that crap. So I'm just like from a guy who was so busy running all over the states. And like when I had my businesses, I was in seven states and then also in seven cities in New York. So I was always on the go. And then on the weekends I had that. And then I would work shows at night and stuff like that. But um, I was, I was home, not doing anything kind of little depressed because I'm decompressing you know, from being on the go 100%. And then I get a call that they wanted, these people wanted to interview me. And I said, well, who are you, you know? What are you interviewing me for? They said, we want you in the movies. I started busting out laughing. I go, movies? Yeah, we have a mob movie going on down in the Monticello area, down like an hour and a half from you, and starring David Arquette and stuff and blah, blah, blah. And your son-in-law sent your pictures in. And we like your look, and we want to know if you'll, you'll come. And so I said, I'll let you know. And I said, what'd you do that for? He goes, because you, you could do this. You could do this. So I went there and I did it. About a whole week staying there doing different filming and stuff of the story Appalachia. Once you look it up and you'll see what Appalachia was about. And after that, I did a uh, Hallmark Christmas show. And then after that, I did uh, a Scottish play, which was a, which was uh, Macbeth. Macbeth is called the Scottish play and the thing was, um, that was Scottish play. Then I did uh, an episode, I did six episodes of People's Court. <laughs> and then, then, then I did, um, uh, shape of things in last summer and it filmed in December um, in uh, Park Avenue uh, theater in New York City and then I did 25 <laughs> here you go 25 episodes as a uh, what do they call those people that are not in the audience but you're on the screen um virtual i was a virtual audience member 30 of us for 25 episodes of the people's court <laughs> hey nice 
what what the funny part was, you know, you get paid, right? So the checks come. And so the one check came and uh, I'm on a first name basis with the mailman because that's my highlight now. When the mailman comes, I run out, you know, like a dog, you know. So it's it's like he hands me the envelope and on it says divorce court. And you could tell it's a check. And he's like looking at me and I'm laughing. And he's looking. I said, you think I'm getting divorced, huh? And he goes, what is it? And then I had to explain it to him. He goes, Jesus, I thought you and your wife were getting divorced. And I said, no, but I could see why you thought that. But things like that. I And then I was a brand guy for a local um, supermarket up here. Uh, Saturday, I had to spend the day talking to people, handing out gifts, and some anniversary of them. So I'm offered a, uh, quite a few things. I, I don't go to all of them. Because uh, with the gas now, if I went down New York, you know, it's costing me like 75 bucks going there and 75 bucks going back. Plus, you got to park your car, you know. So I just said, unless I'm getting, you know, a decent amount of money, I'm not going to do that anymore. But I'm I'm reaching out. I'm trying to find things to do. And, uh, and that was like a, uh, what do you call that, a bucket list I checked off because... I've done uh, television. I've done. Uh, I've been in books, magazines. Uh, I've done commercials locally. So the silver screen was a thing I wanted to get onto. Oh yeah, and I was also in that that three fifty with um, what's his name, Silvio Sincere, something like that. Salvatore. He had the three fifty. Salvatore Sincere. No, no, no. No, that's Tom Brandy. Yes, no. Um, yeah, no, I, I was. You're, you're, I, Colby. Joke sounded better in my head. <laughs> it was it was Fulvio Sincere. He put a movie together called 350, which represented the 350 days on the road that a wrestler used to um, have the, to do out of 350. The Evan Ginsberg movie? Pardon? The Evan Ginsberg movie, 350 Days. Yeah, Evan Ginsberg and stuff. Yes. Well, they interviewed more people than they could use, and I was one of them. And when they had to finally uh, do it, they they took five people out, and I was one of them. But I made the credits. <laughs> I go to my wife. There I am. It's say, that, that's one of my favorite movies. Actually. I was going to say that that's met, that movie's been mentioned on our show a few times. And when we've had yeah, well, Evan, Evan's been a guest in the past. Evan's a good guy. He's a good friend of mine. Yes. You know, we politically hate each other, but like <laughs> uh, we we get along real well. Politics aside, right? This is funny. I love that guy. Well, I'm sorry I took up your whole hour talking. No, that's why we brought you oh. here. As we want yeah. to hear your we, stories. We like the story. And like, yeah, I mean, there's clearly, I mean, I know we, we talked before about some questions we didn't get to. There's at least another hour or two in there. So Ben, like I said, Benny will reach out to you and have you back on. And I would say try not to work too hard, but it sounds like you've, uh, sounds like you got retirement down to a science at this point. <laughs> yeah, right. All I do is wait for that mailman. 
and I'm a runner. Nail, nail. <laughs> I'm gone. It's it was like much more exciting height. when you were a kid, though, wasn't it? Like, you know, back in the day, like, you'd, you'd, you'd fill out that box top from uh, Frosted Flakes, and you'd, get, you'd wait, uh, you'd mail it to Battle Creek, Michigan, and then you'd wait, like, four to six weeks. And it really did take four to six weeks for that little package to arrive in the mail. Like, that was gold. To me, it was the Dick Tracy wristwatch. Yes, that too, <laughs> absolutely. When, when's it coming? <laughs> right, every day. Like, And then you look. You're mad when there's just letters in the mail. It was either uh, you you were either getting a box top toy or a check from grandma. Those were the. Uh, but you weren't getting, yeah, you weren't getting any bills back then. That's for sure. <laughs> right. That's and no no junk mail. The only the only bad thing you might get in the mail was your report card if it wasn't good. Uh, that's when your kids learn how to do your signature. <laughs> Or, or do like Eddie Haskell did to Beaver. You turn D's into B's. Well, you don't, you don't, you don't get the report card after a certain year. It's oh, it didn't come. Oh, they must not have sent it. But right, you right. find out the kid got it and signed your name. <laughs> That's, That's good memories. Well, I appreciate it, guys. I'm, uh, I'm glad that we made an hour. Oh, absolutely. It's been I a hope, pleasure. I hope it was fun. Oh, yes. Yes. The time goes Very much so. And Benny, and Benny, quit talking so much. I'm sorry. <laughs> I get well, paid by the word, so I got to get, you know, I got to make as much money as I can. Not really, but. Well, tell him I hope he's all right and, and everything's fine. And uh, I wish you both health and happiness. Thank you very and much. And if you need me to go on again, uh, and let me know, and if we could do it, we'll do it. Absolutely. We'll definitely reach out to you again. All right. Thank you. See you All again. Right. See you Take again. Take care. Sir. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. The Hall of Fame man himself, Manny. Wow. It, it, you know, it's really funny how, like, you know, I'm at work, and an hour takes, like, five days. <laughs> and, like, we have a guest on here, and, like, an hour is, like, a minute. Yeah, I mean, we're we're coming up on an hour and a half. This is one of our longer right. shows that we've done in, in quite some time. I think we have to go back to uh, our conversations with the Metal Maniac to, to think about as somebody that, that's been, a, a you know, I don't want to I don't want to say long winded, but he definitely had. To, I mean, just like you said, it's it's like sitting on the floor listening to my grandpa's war stories. You know, you, you just next thing you know, you've been talking for an hour, hour and a half, two hours. And it's like, wow, what what, what happened? This could have been a Jim Cornette, like, three-and-a-half-hour episode, easily. Right? Yeah, you got to stay a bit away from that one. I saw his uh, his AEW breakdown on the CM Punk story. It was a five-hour show. Yeah, it was, like, 333 minutes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think uh, I think we could get there, but but uh, we'd, we'd end up killing each other by then. Oh, yeah. Yep. We passed <laughs> my bedtime. <laughs> right. Well, Benny, uh, I know you got the uh, you're going to be in the heart of the storm tomorrow. Hopefully, Hurricane Ian pulls a, a face turn, leaves you alone. Yeah, yeah, it's it actually looks like right now, but who knows? Uh, looks looks more like it's heading a little bit further south and heading towards uh, I think Punta Gorda. So, hmm. yeah, we'll see. Well, I know the uh, as a Navy man myself, the bases down there are battening down the hatches. They're ready to get hit hit hard. So yeah. we'll see. But as always, we got a, a 
Another great show in the bag. A lot of good stuff coming up in the coming weeks for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. I'm Dan Spashon. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Good night.